coined that phrase, but they're surely a part of wise living. Who really enjoys seeing a victor in any area, like sports, for example, lauded over the defeated? I surely don't enjoy seeing that. I prefer to observe the victor exhibiting some class and complimenting the vanquished foe. Once you've won, you've won. Don't make a jerk out of yourself in victory. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, we find David fresh from a victory, courtesy of God's grace and courtesy of the valor of his trusted loyalists. But we find him in 2 Samuel chapter 19, fresh off a of victory, expressing humility in victory. We can learn a lot from this chapter. The New Testament definition of humility is not to think more highly of oneself than one ought to think. And in another place, regarding the needs of others as more important than your own. Pride is focused upon oneself. Humility is focused upon others. Pride is ugly. Humility is beautiful. Pride repulses. Humility attracts. Jesus Christ himself is the greatest example of humility the world has ever known. In that great letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, he speaks of humility. And then after defining humility, he says these words about our Lord. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The attitude he's speaking about there is the attitude of humility. And the point being, if Jesus Christ can exercise humility, I think it's a given that the rest of us ought to. Keep on having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. One quick comment about that word empty, kino'o, it doesn't mean that he ceased to become God or was less than God. It means that he voluntarily restricted the independent use of his divine attributes for the good of the Father's plan. So back in verse 7 again, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that was above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Key concept there, he humbled himself. He's the Lord of the universe, and he humbles himself. And the other key concept is there, because he humbled himself, God the Father exalted him. So much time, I think, is spent in, in pride and arrogance because we want to exalt ourselves. We don't think anybody else is going to do it. So we've got to say, look at me, look at me, look at me. Aren't I great? And God says, if you'll just shut up, if you'll just humble yourselves, let me exalt you. And I'll exalt you at the right, in the right way at the right time. If we would just get that through our heads, we would be more teachable. And guess what? We'd be more happy. Not just more teachable and happy, but we'd be more beautiful and we would be more attractive to others. People wouldn't be repulsed by us. They would be attracted to us. And in this chapter, we see David in one of his great moments. He has just been victorious. He will be humble in victory as he would have been gracious in defeat. 
Pride is focused upon oneself. It's self-directed. Humility focuses upon the other person. Pride is ugly. Humility is beautiful. Pride repulses. Humility attracts. In this way, one might can make a case that humility and love are cousins. They're, they're actually very related attributes. David had his flaws. I think we all agree upon that. We've studied him for long enough now. We, we can probably recite his flaws by memory. But in his core, David was a humble man. And that's illustrated in how he handles victory in this particular chapter. The expression of victory in chapter 19 will be observed in three parts. Verses 9 through 15, we'll see David's dealings with those who took Absalom's side in the rebellion. What's he going to do with those who sided against him? In verses 16 through 23, we'll see David's dealings with this man named Shimei. Remember him from a few weeks ago? Not a very nice fellow. How's he going to deal with him now that the battle's over and David's victorious? And then in verses 24 through 30, we'll see David's dealings with Mephibosheth. Then the final verses of the chapter relate an expression of humility on the part of one of David's friends, great humility on the part of one of David's friends, and then finally, a failure to express humility on the part of some of the people. Well, getting to the text right away, in verse 9 of chapter 19 of Second Samuel, verses 9 through 15 read this way, And all the people were quarreling throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of Philistines, but now he's fled out of the land of Absalom, from Absalom. However, Absalom whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now then, why are you silent about bringing the king back? Then King David said to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the word of all Israel has come to the king, even to his house? Remember, he's from the tribe of Judah. Verse 12, You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king and say to Amasa, are you not my bone and not my flesh? May God so do to me even more so also, if you will not be commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. Thus he turned the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king saying, return you and all your servants. Then the king returned and came as far as the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal in order to meet the king to bring the king across the Jordan. David's been victorious, but he still has a problem. He's been, the, the military problem has been solved. But there remains a political problem, doesn't there? Because a great many of the people, in fact, the majority of the people, sided against David, sided against their king in this battle. Now, David won, and it's a little bit awkward. It would be like this, and maybe you've been in this situation. I hope you haven't, and we all would like to avoid it. It would be like being in a situation where you had a close, uh, close couple that you're friends with. And that couple is fighting. And it looks like they're going to get divorced. And you make the mistake. You know what I mean? You make the mistake of taking sides in that situation. And if you're the guy, you may tell the husband, yeah, you know what? I think you should have got rid of her a long time ago. And if you're the wife, you may talk to the, to the other wife. You may say, you know what? I can't believe the way he treats you. I never liked that guy. And then you know what happens? Invariably, doesn't it happen? They get back together. And guess what you've just lost? A friend, because you can't really associate with them anymore because they know how you feel about their wife or their husband. 
best just to keep out of it altogether. But these people couldn't keep out of it. They had to pick a side. And now there's a lot of awkwardness there. So what's David going to do? Well, he could come back and rule with an iron fist as despots have at times past. Or he could exercise humility. And that's what he chooses to do. That's the only way out for him. He's got to exercise humility in victory. David had long ago proved his worth to these people, the people that God had given him charge over, as he rescued Israel from their perennial enemy, the Philistines. He had been a great leader, not just in a military sense. He wasn't just a great general, although he was a great general. But there's more to David than that. He was also a great civil leader. He had earned the respect of the people for some reason as time went on. Did they grow bored with great leadership? I don't know. But for some reason, as time went on, a great number of the people sided against David in this conflict. And now he either brings them back in, if he wants to lead in any kind of righteous way at all, he either brings them back in through attracting them, or he brings them back in through force. That's not going to work. At least it's not going to work and be a great leader. Many in Israel had made a mistake. And they found themselves on the losing side of this conflict. They were on the wrong side. But David recognized that no good could come from taking retribution against those who sided with Absalom. Now, that's not the easiest thing to do. It's against our nature. That's why several times in the Scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, we're told to leave room for the vengeance of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Many times that idea comes up. Well, David was one that got it. And that's why he stresses here when he's trying to for this reconciliation. And it must have been tough for him because I'm sure he felt betrayed. I'm sure there was part of him that was very hurt by people that he had helped and that he had ruled over in a, in a way of greatness and kindness and humility in the past. Not perfection, but greatness. And they, they sided against him the first time they had an opportunity. So I'm sure this might have been a difficult thing for him. But he exercises some humility, and he stands down, and he reminds them, we're all brothers here. You're my brothers, you're bo my bone and my flesh. In other words, we have much more in common here than we do in with regards to our differences. May I paraphrase? He's saying, let's get this thing behind us. Let's get back to work. And good leaders will do that. They won't take it personally, and David didn't. It's, he, he could have taken it personally. And in a sense, it probably was personal. It was considered to be an insult, but he didn't take it that way. Then he makes a political move that's really rather surprising if you think about it, but he makes a political move by embracing and not just forgiving and accepting, but by embracing Amasa. You'll recall who Amasa is. Amasa was one of David's nephews. Joab, Abishai, Amasa, from different mothers. But they're all his nephews. It's, all, it's an all-in-the-family thing. And Amasa is the one that lined up with Absalom. Now, Absalom really led the troops out as, probably as a figurehead, but Amasa was the military person in Absalom's army. He was the one that just got defeated. But David makes this extraordinary move, almost a very puzzling thing at first. But he makes this extraordinary move by embracing and not just accepting Amasa. 
Amasa had made a bad choice in siding with his cousin, Absalom, over his uncle, David. He had made the wrong choice. No question about that. But David sends word to Amasa that he too is family. uses the same terminology. You're my family, Amasa. And then he does what is a shocking thing, at least on one level. He replaces Joab, who had been loyal to him, with Amasa, who had not been loyal to him. But if you'll recall why, you remember the last lesson that we had, Joab, although he was loyal to David, directly disobeyed an order of the king. Directly disobeyed it. We're going to see that it didn't work out for Joab. It's a special situation. They're all family. Joab had been David's, for the most part of his, of his adult life, Joab had been David's number one in command with some time that that wasn't the case. But most of the time it was. And he was successful. But Joab disobeyed Uncle David's, King David's, that's what the part that we missed, I think, King David's direct order not to hurt Absalom. Not only did he disobey the order, he disobeyed the great way, I mean, in a very public way. Now, Joab was right, and if you, if you recall back to a couple weeks ago, Joab, I think, was right in rebuking his uncle, the king, when David showed disrespect to the men that had just risked their lives for him by an, a normally over-the-top reaction to Absalom's death at least something that was in public that all the men knew. They all went back to their own homes. Remember, Joab came and said, if you don't straighten this out, there's not a one of us going to be left by the morning. We're all out of here. I think Joab was right in doing that. But he was wrong in disobeying the direct order. I don't know this for a fact because the, the text never tells us, but sometimes we can fill in some blanks and it's not that far off. Now, I'm always careful about filling in blanks. Believe me, I'm careful about filling in blanks. But I wonder what David might have been thinking. We have to analyze why would he do a move like this. It seems like almost insulting to Joab. Well, yes, it was insulting to Joab. It may have been insulting, a little bit insulting to Abishai as well, but think about it from David's perspective. If Joab will disobey an order like he did, serious order not to hurt David's son, it, it tells me that Joab is starting to get full of himself, and when's the next time he's going to disobey an order? Who's the next one to lead a rebellion? The next most likely person in this text to lead a rebellion against King David is Joab. Because Joab's already shown that he would rebel against the king. When Joab disobeyed the king, he's telling him, I'm rebelling against you. I don't respect you. I know what you told me to do, and I'm going to do something else because I don't respect you. If we took that in the New Testament terminology, what did Jesus tell us? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Joab was not expressing love toward David. I think this is just my opinion. I think Joab would have been the next person to lead the rebellion, and David takes him out. He has to discipline him in some way, so he takes him out, and he appoints Amasa as the leader of his army. This move accomplished two things. It demonstrates to all those who had rebelled, and it was a great number of Israelites, that David is serious about this reconciliation. And then secondly, it demonstrated to Joab and to anybody else who would care to watch, that David is still in charge. He's still the king, not Joab. You don't disobey a direct order of the king and get away with it. 
Again, I think Joab was right in challenging David and rebuking him for the way that he treated the men after the battle. But he was wrong for disobeying David. It could have long-term neg- negative ramifications, and I think David, being a good leader, knew it. That's one thing a leader needs to do, is be able to project out in an objective way to project out what may happen in the near future. Today, Absalom. Tomorrow, Joab. I don't know, but it's certainly possible. David does this to show everyone who's the boss. So the first thing is to demonstrate that he's serious about reconciliation. The second thing to demonstrate, he is the boss. He's the king. Joab's attitude notwithstanding. Well, you know Joab. So even without reading ahead, and if you want to, after the class is over, feel free to do so. But in the next chapter, you know who's going to get murdered. And it's not Joab. It's amazing. It seems like everybody, every time somebody gets in between Joab and power, they go down. And we'll study that in one of our next lessons in 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 4 through 13. On his deathbed, approximately 10 years later, David instructed his son Solomon to see to it that as soon as he died, Joab was executed. And I believe that was because David knew that he could handle Joab. But Solomon would never be able to. Had Solomon not done what David told him to do, it would be very likely the temple would have been built by somebody else. Although that was part of prophecy, so that's idle speculation. It's not going to happen that way. But young Solomon follows through on it, and he has his, his cousin Joab executed. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, we find the second of these episodes. The first is David dealing with the people that had rebelled against him. Now an individual that had rebelled against him. Remember Shimei in one of David's lowest moments when he's leaving Jerusalem in retreat. Here's this rotten fellow. And that's the nicest thing I could call him and still leave it on the tape. This rotten fellow comes and curses David as he goes. He's one of these kind of guys that will spit on you when you're down. He'll step on you when you're down. He'll pile on when you're down. And that's what Shimei was doing. And you remember at that time, the nephew said, hey, how about letting us kill him? Don't let him talk to you that way. Then they all surrounded David, and Shimei is throwing dust, and he's throwing rocks at the king, and probably not hitting the king, but hitting them. And even at that time, David said to Joab and to Abishai, listen, what are you talking about? I'm not going to kill this guy. Maybe God sent him to curse me. Maybe this is divine discipline. But he didn't know what the situation was, so David at that time said, let this guy alone. And he keeps cursing him and throwing at him, throwing stuff at him. Well, now, turns out Shimei was on the wrong side, too. So what's he going to do? We'll listen here. Then Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjaminite, who was from Baharim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, with Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and twenty servants with him. And they rushed to the Jordan before the king. Then they kept crossing the ford to bring over the king's household and to do what was good in his sight. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. So he said to the king, Let not my lord consider me guilty, nor remember what your servant did wrong on the day when my lord the king came out from Jerusalem, so that he should take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come today, the first of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king. That's clear, isn't it? 
And if it's me, I'm sorry, but I'd probably say the same thing that Abishai does. And I would have been just as wrong as Abishai. But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Should not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And then David does what he does with his nephews. Then he said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Should any man be put to death in Israel today? For do I not know that I am the king over Israel today? Not today, Abishai. We're not executing anybody today. I have an idea that that was probably in the back of David's mind too. Knowing David like we do, I have an idea that's probably in the back of his mind. But there are military leaders and then there are political leaders. And every now and then you get a military leader that's also a political leader. Every now and then. And David was both. He was a military genius, but he also had political savvy, and he knew this is not the right time to execute anybody, especially somebody as important in the community as Shimei was. So he lets him go. The king said to Shimei, you shall not die. Thus the king swore to him. This is an interesting episode because Shimei had been quick to curse David when he's dead, and now the tables have been turned. And I'm sure Shimei was scared to death. I think that's why the text tells us he's the very first one in line to meet him. Because he knows, he, he may as well go out there anyway, right? Otherwise, he's a dead man. If he waits for David to come back, he figures he's a dead man. Shimei is, is one of these type of fellows that I, it's really hard to find anything good about him, anything likable about this guy, because he's a piler honor. You know what I mean? People who get you when you're down. It's easy to pile on someone when they're going through a rough patch, when you find them in a state of weakness. We've all been there when people have done that to us. I have been there. Someone takes advantage of a weakness, and then at that point in time when you can do nothing in return, when you're totally weak, you're totally helpless, the venom that comes forth from them is really ugly. What's really in their soul comes out. At the very moment, you can do nothing about it. But the Lord says not to take vengeance upon that person. And so that's what's going on with David here. What's he going to do? If he was prideful, if he was arrogant, this is the moment that he was taking his revenge against Shimei. But in doing so, can you see how he would look in front of these thousand plus people that had come out to greet him? Remember, he's trying to have a reconciliation with the people in the land. So in humility... He lets it go. David takes the high road. Abishai does not. And I've got to admit to you once more, I can see Abishai's point. I understand it, but it's not right. We can understand a point without agreeing with him, right? I can understand his point, but we know that it's not right. So second episode. First was David reconciling the whole people. Second, a particular person, Shimei, and now it's, it can be argued that this particular section might be the center piece of this, the rest of this chapter. And that's this man, Mephibosheth. You remember him? He's Jonathan's son. He's lame. He was one that they, they tried to make a puppet king at one time, and he just wouldn't have been the right person for that. He's not strong at all. And David, as a result of his friendship to Jonathan, chooses to show kindness to Mephibosheth. Remember, he takes him and has him eat at his table. He supplies him with a farm so he can raise his own food. 
He's been kind to him. But remember when David is fleeing, Mephibosheth's servant comes out, and he says, you know, Mephibosheth's not supporting you at all. I'm going to support you. But Mephibosheth's not. Well, David thinks Mephibosheth has turned against him too. Now we find out that Mephibosheth didn't really turn against him. In verse 24, Then Mephibosheth, son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he neither cared for his feet, that probably meant cut his toenails, but he neither cared for his feet or trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until he came home in peace. That might not mean like a, a lot to us, but what that, what that verse is telling us is that all along Mephibosheth was on David's side. All along, and he could tell because his beard had grown, his hair had, been, had grown long, it was unwashed, even his feet had not been cared for. And you can't fake that. You can't just do that in a day. So that's what this verse is telling us. All along, it was a lie that he had turned against David. And it was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? A legitimate question, isn't it? So he answered, O Lord the king, O my Lord the king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king because your servant is lame. He's speaking about himself here. Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my Lord the king. But my Lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do whatever is good in your sight. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my Lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who ate at your own table. What right do I have yet? that I should complain any more to the king. Now, this man's exhibiting humility. This is not like uh, Shimei. This is a whole different thing. He had been wronged, but he comes and says, listen, I want you to know I was always on your side. I was going to saddle a donkey and come with you, but I couldn't walk. And this servant of mine that came and talked to you that, be, that lied about me, he betrayed me. It's a legitimate question for David to ask him, why didn't you come with me? And what this man is doing is saying, I didn't come with you because I couldn't. But I'll tell you what, I'm nothing. You helped me out so much. I didn't deserve it. Nobody from the house of Saul deserved it. But you helped me. And so then David makes a pronouncement as to what is, should happen. In verse 29, so the king said to him, Why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. This has puzzled commentators for as long as the text has been here. In fact, even if you go back to the Talmud, they have some discussion about this text of exactly what's going on here. Why is David splitting the land? Is it because he doesn't know who's telling the truth? I don't know because Mephibosheth is certainly unkempt. Remember the whole thing about the toenail. If it really does refer to the toenails, as commentators believe, you can't fake toenail growing in terms of mourning like that. The Talmud actually sees a parallel. That's the Jewish commentary in the Old Testament, ancient. The Talmud sees a parallel between this episode with this divide the land and another episode that will happen in Solomon's life. Exactly. Remember with the baby? And they're going to divide the baby, and the real mom says, no, you keep it all. Well, let's read on. And Mephibosheth said to the king, let him even take it all since my lord the king has come safely to his own house. Now, it's not an exact parallel, but I find it interesting that Jewish commentators of old 
saw a parallel, and there is some parallel here between what's going to happen here and what will happen in Solomon's life later, Solomon exercising wisdom, a little bit different result, because we never find out that David says within Mephibosheth, you get it all, at least not here. But maybe there is a parallel there. David is exercising wisdom, and Mephibosheth says the same thing that the real mom of that baby will say later. Listen, I'm not here to get the land back. He can have it all as far as I'm concerned, King David. All I want is your favor. All I want is to show you that I never really left you. And so there's humility being exercised on the part of Mephibosheth. Finally, in verses 31 through 39, we see a man named Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Bogilin, and he went, to, went on to the Jordan with the king to escort him over the Jordan. Now, Barzillai was very old, being 80 years old. Now, that's just the text just now. I know some of you are 80 years old, starting to, starting to step on some toes here. <laughs> In those days, that was very old. How about that? All right. And he had sustained the king while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very great man. And the king said to Barzillai, you cross over with me, and I'll sustain you in Jerusalem with me. In other words, this is the guy that remained loyal. He sees him passing by, and David says, come with me. You helped me out, now I'm going to help you out. Well, this, this man, Barzillai, refuses the king's offer. He said to the king, how long have I yet to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm now 80 years old. Can I distinguish between good and bad? Or can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? All he's saying is, he's not saying he doesn't have a moral compass anymore. He's just saying, my mind's a little cloudy nowadays. Or can I hear any more the voice of singing men and women? Why then should your servant be added, be an added burden to my Lord, your, the king? I'd love to. I appreciate that. But I'm a little older now. I'd be more troubled than I'm worth. I don't feel like I should go. Your servant will merely cross over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king compensate me with this reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. However, here is your servant, Shimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king, and do for him what is good in your sight. And the king said, Shimham shall cross over the river with me, and I will do for him what is good in your sight, and whatever you require of me, I will do for you. So I'll take on your friend. Instead of you, if that's what you want, me to show kindness to him, I'll be happy to do that. All the people crossed over the Jordan, and the king crossed too. Then the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his place. So we see David exercising humility by effecting a reconciliation with all the people, by effecting a reconciliation with a really a guy that was a little jerk, Shimei, and then by having a reconciliation with a guy who wasn't a jerk, but it appeared that he was at one time, Mephibosheth. And now we see a man that exercises humility also, great, great humility, this Barzillai. But then the chapter closes in verses 40 through 43 with some people that aren't exercising so much humility. There's always somebody in the crowd, right? I mean, you're having a great party and somebody's got to be in a bad mood or somebody's got to, everybody's exercising humility and somebody has got to end up exercising arrogance and pride and that's going to happen. In the verses 40 through 40, or 41 and following, And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all of David's men over with him to the Jordan? And then all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative to us. Why then are you angry about this matter? 
Have we at all eaten? Have we eaten at all the king's expense? Or has anything been taken from us? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts in the king. Talking about the tribe. We have ten parts in the king. Therefore, we also have more claim on David than you. Why then did you treat us with contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. So they're spoiling the party. They're arguing over who gets to escort the king. And why did you get here first? Why shouldn't I have been first? So the chapter kind of ends on a negative note. They both make their case as to why they have a better grip on David. But their pride turned the whole thing into ugliness. So you have a great contrast between the middle of the chapter where you see David exercising wonderful humility and Mephibosheth probably too and certainly Barzillai. And then at the end of the chapter, you have some of the people that are doing anything but exercising humility and their pride turns the whole thing into an ugly mess. Pride is focused upon oneself. Humility's focus is upon the other person. Pride is ugly. Humility is beautiful. Pride 